Now it's time for Inspirational Women, and my guest, Bernice Lerner, author and senior scholar at Boston University's Center for Character and Social Responsibility. Bernice joins us this morning to introduce us to her mother, one of the main characters, subjects of her new book, All the Horrors of War. We're at the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. We can commemorate it with reading two new perspectives of that time, truly compelling stories. So let's meet Bernice for more insights. Bernice Lerner, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. It's my pleasure. And of course, the reason we're together, this book, All the Horrors of War, just like the title implies, it, there is horror, but thank you so greatly for having the stamina, for having the passion to make sure that this story has been told. Well, thank you. So in All the Horrors of War, it's unique in the sense that it's a story of, well, your mother as a young girl in Romania during the war, taken to just myriad, it seems, concentration camps, and then the liberator. So we have these two stories happening somewhat simultaneously. So that really, more than anything before, not that I've done a lot of war reading, but it gives us a very unique perspective. And would you say that's true, Bernice? Oh, yes. It's it's very unusual in terms of uh, books that are written about the subject. Yeah. It's a very, I took a very, very deep dive into the question of how my mother survived, going so far as to look into um, the man who spearheaded liberation efforts at the concentration camp where she was at the end of the war. And so it took me into a whole other world because I explored the life of this man, Glenn Hughes, what did he bring to the experience? What kind of decisions did he have to make when he confronted the most horrific thing he had ever encountered? And what did he come away with after that? Why was it a watershed for him? And, um, yeah, and it all stemmed from the question of what happened to my mother at the end of the war? She was 14 when she was deported to Auschwitz with her family. Uh, you're right in that she was, miraculously taken out of Auschwitz and put to work in a slave labor at a different camp and then was on a death march. And then, like so many others who had survived already so much, who had escaped the gas chambers and who had been young and strong enough to work for the German war effort, was dumped in this hell called Bergen-Belsen. And she had fallen unconscious. She was very, very sick. And how was she? How was her life saved? So it sprung from that question, led me to the brigadier who helped, who made the decision to try to save as many lives as possible. And, and that's how I uncovered this other story and told the story of two lives over one year's time. And it is... It's a compelling story. It's so critically important for all of us to to know that this happened. That was 75 years ago now yes. when the war ended. We're looking at 75 years. And 
still, this is, I'm sure, for your mother, who is still living, correct? Yes, she's 90. Yes. Yes. So it's so amazing and still quite active in life. Um, But that's jumping ahead. How did you ask the question, or was your mother already at a young age telling you some of her story? Or when did this come to you, Bernice? So um, I learned about the war before the term Holocaust even came into existence. It was the war. And um, I uh, came to me very organically. It started when I was very young, when I was really little. I would delay bedtime by just um, seeing if I could keep her talking and asking her questions about her childhood. And she had this really interesting childhood. She was in Romania, and I was in Long Island, New York. And she had um, she came from a poor family. She was the second of six children, and she had all these incredible stories to tell me about her youth. And then she had this post-war chapter of her life before I came into existence. She lived for 10 years in Sweden. And um, while she was there, I I didn't really realize the extent of it till I began really writing the book, how much she suffered after the war in Sweden because she had tuberculosis and she was in and out of TB sanitarium um, because she was so sick um, after... Bergen Belgian. And uh but she had adventures in Sweden too, so she had this whole other culture and life to tell me about. So when I was a child I learned about her childhood and post war years and when I was a teenager, at the time she was going through the worst period of her life when her parents were taken away and killed and they were deported to Auschwitz, that's when she told me about the horrors that she witnessed and endured. So that's how it came out. And then we subsequently just could always jump back to different points of her, points of her life, and I could ask her questions. And she would willingly tell me what happened. She would always answer my questions thoughtfully and truthfully. Which is such a blessing, and what a gift to have her be that open because I think that many people just didn't want to even give it a, another thought because it had been so horrific. You're so right, Kate. In, in many survivor households, either it was just too painful. It was too painful for the survivors to talk. Well, the, uh, you know, some of the times they did later in life if they survived after after retirement, maybe they felt the moral obligation to bear witness, but many, uh, most often they didn't talk about it and they didn't necessarily want to tell their children. They were busy rebuilding their life and it was too painful to recall. And sometimes children didn't want to ask because who wants to take their parents back to a place of, a place of such trauma and tragic, tragedy and loss and pain. So we had an unusual dynamic, me and my mom. And I think it maybe one of the things is just our personalities and The other thing was that she was so young when she had gone through it. So she had had a childhood that anchored her and she was, she was pretty, she was exercised her own agency during the war. I I was very impressed with her when I was hearing her stories as a teenager because she was a teenager when, a young teenager when she went through it and she outwitted the Nazis. Yes. So I was, yeah, I thought she was 
I was very impressed and taken with her and also the way she was as a mother. And she was incredibly resourceful and generous and kind and lovely and loved by so many. And I was really lucky to have her as a mom. And isn't that something to have that kind of spirit? It, it obviously was so strong to survive all the horrors that she had. And maybe it's the way that she did maneuver through it. It was in, It's incredible how strong she was for a teenager and, and how determined and, and just so wise and how she looked at everything and, and decided how she would proceed further forward and, and help others along the way, like her sister and some of the friends from her village. Yeah, I think that it was very hard to survive um, if you were by yourself. People did try to, if they didn't have a sibling with them, they tried to um, have a, a community or a friend or some somebody to live for and to help and to be, especially women, I think, were, were doing that. And, of course, it could have been very difficult to have a mother with you um, because sometimes they weren't as physically able to endure some of the things. So to witness the demise of a parent was a terrible thing. And for a parent to witness the death of their child is, of course, just unspeakable, unimaginable, and painful. And she was just her and her sister going through it. And they really survived for each other and helped each other a lot during the war. And that is such an incredible story. Yes, that you know, as as girls at home, they were so different and not necessarily the best of friends. But here, that family bond, that sisterhood, really pulled them together and helped each of them survive. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and in turn, uh, the other members, the the friends, and some of them, uh, th- there were, I think, a couple of mothers, weren't there? Uh, like more mature women that were with them in the group, right? Yeah, yes, there were. And I don't know how many of them ultimately survived. They were, um, that was from when they were in the slave labor camp. Um, There were some women who survived with their young, you know, they could have been in their, they could have been young and strong in their late 30s, early 40s, and they could have had a teenage child with them. And if they um, came to Auschwitz at a certain period of time, when the Nazis were making their selection and they desperately needed help in their slave labor in the midst of the war, there was a manpower shortage. If, if they were young and strong, they could have both, maybe the mother and the teenager could have been selected to be together. But if parents came with young children, there was no chance. There was no chance. They were just, unless some mother was coached to give a baby to a grandmother, she went to the gas chamber with the baby. The Nazis didn't want to separate them. So, yeah, so my mother's mother, my grandmother, was killed probably right away after arriving in Auschwitz with the little ones and their family. And my mother was hushed to go with a young woman, even though she was 14, and really the Nazis were not interested in anyone under 16 or 18 or someone strong who could really work. She was pushed together with the other young women and and then subsequently lied about her age. Yeah. Yes. So she was, my mother was on the very young end of the people who, who did manage to make it through the war. 
young and survived all that. The word horrors is a strong word, and it still doesn't totally capture what was going on, which is why I think... You know, we are are really uh, fortunate that you're writing the story. We need to to read this because this is essentially a firsthand account of that experience. I, I guess there perhaps are others, but the way that you tell the story, I think, has a uniqueness to it, Bernice. It, it's taking history, it's factual, and you weave in what was going on with the war. So I guess that's part of the uniqueness of it. Yes, I, I really, uh, it's a work of nonfiction. There's nothing in it that's not true. And um, to the best of my knowledge and my research, and um, I, I thought the history is so important, and the last year of the war is so eventful and important. And I think that uh, if you follow people, uh, individuals, protagonists through this year, it makes it more accessible, makes it easier to relate because you're, you identify with one or the other or both of these people um, from very different walks of life, very different circumstances. Someone from the, the liberating army and, and a victim. And so I kind of braid their two stories, and, and I learned a tremendous amount writing it about, about really where I knew about the Holocaust, and I did a lot more research around the context of things that my mother had shared with me, the personal anecdote, and that what was the larger thing that was happening that gave rise to the situation she was navigating. And then also about the British, I had no idea what the battles were or how, how, the, how they came, um, what, how they, what their goal was. And, and it was also such a race against time story because there were so many parts where the they thought the war would be over. And I would think to myself, well, if the war was over then, if the war was over after the D-Day invasion, after the summer fighting in Normandy, like, where would my mother have been? Like, what would she have lost and what would she have been spared? So I was, it was sort of a, a race against time. And, you know, if the British had come into Bergen-Belsen just a few days later, I wouldn't be here to, t- to write this, to tell you the story because she wouldn't have survived. It was that much in the nick of time in her case. And, of course, the liberators came far too late for too, too many people. Some 17,000 people died uh, just in the month of March in that one place in Bergen-Belsen. And, yeah, it's hard to get our head around the big numbers. So it is helpful to focus in on individual lives. Absolutely. To to mention those numbers, to realize how many perished through this, yes, through the horror of that terrible war. And and your mother, the, this bright light, it, you almost have to feel that there were like angels surrounding her uh, to give her that stamina to keep pushing forward that you know, even when she got so sick that she was able to just persevere and, and uh, come through it. Yeah, she had enormous willpower. She had things she was telling herself when she was dying. And just um, Victor Frankl, um, the psychiatrist who survived the worst, wrote, he wrote, if he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. And she had her wife to live. And 
she was, yeah, she was in a makeshift hospital room at the end of the war, and every day for three weeks, 11, there were 12 people in her room, 11 were taken out dead, and 11 brought in who were dying, and she was hanging on. And, yeah, so she exercised enormous will at that point, and she was so strong, she kind of was a little orphaned girl, emaciated and very diseased, and she kind of defied characterization as did the British brigadier who kind of was a military war hero, decorated, had done heroic things during World War One and World War Two, and here he was in Bergen-Belsen also defying characterization and that he was breaking down, crying, because he had never seen anything like what he saw when he came into that camp. And and it was interesting that you would drop that kind of phrase that he that he would not really uh, would be be able to understand the horrors that were still facing him. You know, we know what happens, but but to have that kind of dropped in there because each place along the way when he sees the numbers of people and the way that they've been left and not cared for and, you know, on, on crutches and such. Yeah, it's, it really paints this uh, really amazing picture of a, such a compassionate man. Yes, he was definitely the right kind of personality for that work that had to be done. Yeah, well, he was unusual. He was kind of almost like an Oscar Schindler type figure, if you know uh, Oscar Schindler. Y- yes. And that he had great empathy for the victims. He could see the humanity in these skeletal figures who just almost didn't look human anymore. And he was a doctor at heart. He had, you know, he, if he probably, he, he, would, he would have wanted to treat individual patients. And here he was in charge of, organizing, like, field ambulances and casualty clearing stations and big war operations, treating the wounded soldiers and and arranging for their rescue and their evacuation to safe places. And, And here he came into this death camp, and there were... There was one... Bergen Belsen had different parts, and my mother was in with the British right away dubbed the horror camp where there were 41,000 people who were all diseased. Every, almost every, there were three epidemics raging there and other diseases that we don't even know about. I mean, almost everybody had gastroenteritis. I mean, the huts were overcrowded and people were just relieving themselves wherever they were. There was no sanitation, no toilet facilities, no food or water the last Five days, the Nazis gave them nothing, so they were skeleton, skeletons and reduced really to almost an animal-like state. And he could see that they were human beings, so he was very empathetic. And having his story, that also just adds the substance of what went on, seeing it from his viewpoint, having your mother share what it was like for her, it's just so, again, so incredible for us to have an opportunity to see both sides basically simultaneously. 
Yeah, and they eat. Yeah, I wanted um, the reader to be able to really understand and come to know these protagonists, these characters. Maybe the reader would identify with one or the other or both of them. And they each represent a much larger group. My mother, the victims. What were other people experiencing and seeing? And I tried to listen to other survivors of Bergendals and talk about what they saw at the end of the war. And Glenn Hughes representing the liberator. What were other other people, other what were the British soldiers and other people coming into this place seeing and experiencing? Of course, he had the major responsibility, but he, he appointed others in charge of various aspects of the rescue and relief operations. So what was it like for them? Well, yeah. You have so it, de- it, it's um it's a lot of a lot of information, but I hope in a way that is very relatable through these characters. I would have to say yes, definitely. Because again, it's not something that we really want to uh want to live with, but we need to because it's it's history, it's the truth, and heaven forbid that we would go through that sort of thing again, because don't they say, you know, history will repeat itself if we don't learn from the lessons of the past? Yes. Yes. And I have to tell you that um, what we're going through now, this pandemic, is absolutely, uh, I mean, it doesn't compare. You can't really say them in the same breath, right? Right. But I have uh, but I have to tell you that what I read in the newspapers, every day there's something that reminds me of the medical work that was done in Bergen-Belsen because there are certain things, like, do you want to hear yes. parallels? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the total shock of how this pandemic, this, the coronavirus descended upon us and the unpreparedness and the scrambling to get resources and just trying to... The, and that's what, I mean, Bergen-Belsen, they, obviously they weren't prepared for this. And Glenn Hughes had to call for help from wherever he could. Any corner of that he could think of, typhus experts were brought in. And, and German nurses and doctors were pressed into service, much to the dismay of the inmates who were terrified of the Germans. And bringing in uh, medical students who had just not yet graduated that's what turned things around a little bit. Uh, the death rate in Bergen-Belsen was reduced from 500 a day to less than 100 a day after three weeks when they brought in 97 medical students from England. And we see that happening now. We see not yet graduated medical school students being called to the front lines. And just like in Bergen-Belsen, they were pressed. They did whatever they do whatever they have to do. Of course, it doesn't come close to what what Bergen-Belsen was like, but, you know, they have to clean the rooms in between COVID patients. And, yeah, they just are doing whatever they can to help out on the front line. And this obsession with data that we get in the news every day about how many are dying, and it was the same thing there. And, and we can't get really accurate estimates because we don't know how many people are walking around who have or have had corona the coronavirus who are asymptomatic, but the obsession with numbers and not being able to get it right is going on now. And it was going on then. 
I think that um, in a crisis situation, uh, the numbers, the data becomes very important because as a way of trying to make sense of what's going on. I think for me, the Holocaust and what my mother went through is very present and very relevant. And I think about it a lot. It's very immediate. And I know that it feels like ancient history to some people and young people. And uh, that, that worries me and it scares me because... It's such an important part of human history, and I do think people need to to know what happened. We do, absolutely. And your mother is, aside from this important piece of sharing her story with you, she's also relating the story of the Holocaust at the Holocaust Museum, correct? She, Yeah, she lives on Long Island uh, in New York, and she is affiliated with the Holocaust Memorial and Tolerance Center, and she speaks to school groups, and she's spoken to over 250 school groups. And her name is different now than it is in the book. I gave her her name that she was born with in the book, but her name now is, she goes by Ruth Mermelstein. Well, she wants to change her name back to Rachel, which was her original name. But um, anyway, the pandemic has, has um, stopped some of her important work, although she has learned to do Zoom. So she's <laughs> still speaking. In fact, today she's speaking to 120 students. So it's, it, it, and it's, she's told that, um, she tells them, she tells them that there are now witnesses and they are the last generation to hear directly from an eyewitness. And now they're witnesses going forward and they have to counter Holocaust denial and be, and stand up and speak out for what is right. So she she gives a very important message to these young people, and she's also a living example of how, if they go through difficult times in their lives, they can overcome even grave hardship and move forward. So, yeah, she's she's wonderful, and I'm very grateful she's still alive, and she could help me with the book, and yeah. And that, you know, that message that they can survive, when she survived what she did and is here to tell the story at age 90, hopefully they get that message and realize, yes, times are tough for us, given what we're accustomed to, but we can survive this. We just need to be ingenious as she was. Yes. So are some of her presentations recorded that people could go to them and listen? Well, she does. She has been videotaped through uh, the Eyewitness Project, Steven Spielberg's project at the University of Southern California. And she is, there are some video clips of her, I think, on YouTube, perhaps. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, not all of her talks to school groups have been taped. But anyone can get in touch with her through the Holocaust Memorial and Tolerance Center on, in Nassau County. And, of course, her story is told in my book in detail, and more than she could ever say in a talk that she gives. And it's been vetted by her. <laughs> the chapter drafts have gone back and forth. And I tried to get it as accurate as I could for both her telling her story and the brigadier's story. It is uh, important. I can't even stress, underscore how critically important this story is. And, you know, in thinking of the videos, I was just thinking of, you know, hearing a person's voice kind of puts it in our head. But this is the greater version 
of the story so we have that detail. The book, All the Horrors of War, is of course now available for any of us to purchase. And, uh, you know, I keep stressing that here in in the greater Seattle area, the small bookstores are also shipping books at this time. So we can all always request a book through those bookstores. But it's available online as well, isn't it, Bernice? Yes, it is. And I think I might even have links to clips of my mother on my website. There's certainly a lot of more pictures um, and things on it. So anyway, I, I'm at BerniceLearner.com, www.BerniceLearner.com. Yes, a really important website as well. So together, the website and the book is going to give us a most important history lesson that we could ever really hope to find because of just, again, putting these parallel stories together, both of these very important people in history. Typically, we wouldn't hear about your mother, about Ruth, or Rachel, as she is in the book. And uh, maybe if we're history buffs, we might read about Glenn Hughes. But here, with the way that you've written, Bernice Lerner, the way that you've written All the Horrors of War, we really do get a, such a complete picture. Yeah, I think I think you learn about the people and the history. Yes. And that really makes it succinct. Yes. Yes, it's a short, it's a pretty short book. <laughs> it, for, it is. For a lot of, uh, yeah, it's, I think I'm hoping it's a quick read for people. You know, amazingly, it is quite a quick read. Even with all the the notes, I'd find myself flipping back to see what what this might reference, because there's a little bit more story sometimes with with your footnotes, but, um, yes. but the yes. story itself. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, Bernice, this has been just such a privilege. I have greatly appreciate this time with you. And thank you. And thank you to your mother. You know, I just wish her all the best going forward. She is truly a, an incredible woman with a really incredible daughter. Oh, thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Bernice Lerner and Sunday Morning Magazine with Scott Turo. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your having shared this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Click on the podcast tab, then Sunday mornings, and then look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of remembering and committing to making the world a better place. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.